Welcome to PCA One-on-One, Positive Coaching Alliance's podcast series where we talk with leading experts about how to develop better athletes, better people through sports. And now here's your host, Jim Thompson, PCA founder and CEO. So I'm very delighted today. My guest is Doug Bruno, the head women's basketball coach of the DePaul Blue Demons. Uh, he's also coached uh, at the high school level, boys basketball, at the professional level with the Chicago Hustle, um, and has been an assistant coach on the USA women's team that has won internationally, and really renowned not only as a, a very effective coach, but also as a developer of players, and really excited to have some time to talk with Doug. Doug, welcome to uh, PCA One-on-One. I'm excited about being here, Jim. So um, I want to start with um, just talking about your athletic director, who was uh, the captain, I believe, of the first team you you coached at DePaul, Gene Lenti Ponsetto. Did I say it right? Yes, you did. And I think you said that she was the first and best captain you ever had. I know she had a successful uh, battle against breast cancer. Um, what what made her such a great great player, competitor, and captain? Jeannie was one of those athletes that led by example. She was you know, ultra competitive between the lines when the when the competition was going on, and at the same time, just had a, a great happy about her, a great happy personality about her, and she had the ability to. I think another really positive trait in her was she really worked to get along with people. She was a a captain that she wasn't just trying to be friends with people, but she had a way about her that, you know, made people want to be around her. And she was just fair and good and and saw the the best in people. So I think that's a couple of of the character traits, but also something that was great about Jeannie was she was not, she, she embraced constructive conflict. So many young athletes or people like to run away from conflict or be different in, in, in the face of conflict. And I'm not talking competition conflict. I'm talking interpersonal conflict here. And Jeannie was always just one of those people that wasn't afraid to by straightforwardly looking people in the eye with a happy smile on and trying to trying to be best for the person that, you know, not trying to win a, 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 a situation of conflict or differences, but rather trying to, to be a giver in that, in that conflict, but still not backing down from what she needed to stand up for. So it, it was just that trait of handling, you know, constructive conflict yeah, I mean, it was it, when I say she was one of the best captains I ever had, the, the best captain. It was my third year coaching. I coached two years of high school basketball, and I coached some really, really good young gentlemen at the time. But none of them could have possibly been as mature as she. She was a collegiate athlete, and she was older. But she had also been the president of her senior class, and and you know she she was just really, really good at at bringing the team together. 
and and yet at the same time when conflict had to be you know it had to be addressed i could call on her and just ask her what do you think and how best do you think we can get to the bottom of this and get moving through it and her direct her direct ability to do this was was i think very fascinating Hey, Doug, um, th- thank you. That's a great answer. Um, two thoughts there. One is uh, at Positive Coaching Alliance, we have um, a set of our values, and one of them is debate and commit rather than smooth and avoid. And we tell people, you know, when they're hired, you know, they're the first, you know, they've, they've just come aboard on, at Positive Coaching Alliance, and they may be, you know, the lowest ranking person in the whole organization, but you have a responsibility if you if you don't like the way things are going to to raise an issue uh and then we debate about it and and commit and and it seems like Jeannie was an example of debate and commit um before you respond to that i also want to say we have a model for athletes we call the triple impact competitor who is someone who makes himself better her teammates better and the game better by the way he or she competes and and from what you told me about uh, Jeannie, it seems like she was a triple impact competitor. She worked really hard to make herself better. She tried to make her teammates better, and and the way she competed made uh, you know the university proud and the, the game of basketball better. That, that's absolutely correct, Jim. I, and and you have put them. I mean, positive coaching alliances put them in in a great state, a greatly stated place. And that's exactly what Cheney did both as a, a player on the, on the point of debate and commit and on the point of making herself better, her teammates better and her team and program better. I mean, she, she was all of that. We didn't call it that at the time. And that's why your group is, is as good a group as it is, is because you've been able to put this into a nomenclature that is really, really appropriate. And then Jeannie, Jeannie really did live those two examples that you just brought up here. Wow, thank you for that. Um, you know, we say that um, youth sports, you know, we, we focus mostly on high school and youth sports, <clears throat> um, not so much college and professional. Uh, and we say that uh, athletes need three things. Uh, one is they need to feel connected to their teammates and their coach, that they don't really commit until they feel that connection, to believe that they can improve, and they also want to feel good about playing with integrity. And I'd like to start with the connectedness piece. Um, I, there's a quote that's been floating around for a long time. I didn't realize how long it had been floating around, but it's uh, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I started doing some research on that, and I found out that Theodore Roosevelt was the person who said that first. <laughs> um, and um, so our belief is that kids, high school age, um, youth sports, probably professional and uh, college players as well, need to feel connected to their teammates and their coach. And so um, I just love if you would talk a little bit about how you help your players feel connected to each other and to the team and to you as a coach. Relationships take time, and the concept of the human relationship at all different levels and depths requires time, and it requires time from every party. So 
the connectedness from coach to player, I, I really believe, is a function of spending the time with the athlete to get to know the athlete, show the athlete that you do care about them in the big picture of their lives, not just in their athletic or sports-specific productivity of their life. And at the same time, you have to work to take the time to get to know each individual athlete. When people ask me, Jim, what is the hardest part? How, what's the hardest thing about what you do as a coach? It's not hard to develop relationships. At the same time, it takes an inordinate amount of time, and time needs to be given, and time needs to be gladly and happily shared. And so I, I just really believe that the connectedness starts by giving time. And in this day and age of differences, for instance, I am a 65-year-old coach. I'm not hiding behind my age. I'm not, I really believe that there's still connectivity that transcends age when you're dealing with human beings. So I just, yeah. you know, we, we, we work really, really hard at, at making sure that the time is, is spent. And, and it, it just seems simple when you say time, but time means people person to person time. I really enjoy meeting yeah. you on the phone here at the same time. We're not eyeball to eyeball, so it's not going to be quite the same as our relationship begins to develop as to when we are together person to person. This then brings in the question of modern technology, and I am a, I am a believer that every adult or every elder, that, that we really respect the technology advances made, and then use those technology, technological advances to our benefit. However, I also believe that it is very difficult to develop human relationships with only your thumbs and a text message or only yeah. all of your fingers and a keyboard. I really, I really respect and can handle all these technologies and like them and embrace them. I'm not an old man that says I don't turn on my I don't know how to turn on my computer. I really like <laughs> learning technology every day. At the same time, when I walked down my the, the aisle of my bus 15 years ago or 18 years ago and player A was on one side of the aisle and player B was on the other side of the aisle and they were texting one another. Don't don't hold me to the texting didn't exist 18 years ago. The, the exact year, it was one of the first years of texting and player A was talking to player B through their thumbs sitting across the aisle from one another on a bus. I, I, I just said, you know, I, I think it's your teammates and you can put those things down right now and you can really, you know, we're, you can say we're stuck on a bus. We're traveling to a, a, a destination of competitive achievement, you know, a belief in competitive achievement, but you can also sit and talk to one another right now versus thumb with one another. So, you know, okay, back to the connectedness. I think it's interpersonal and I think personal time yeah. needs to be spent 
It needs to be given. It needs to be shared. It needs to be worked at. And so I, I just think that's a, a great place and starting point of connectivity. So as a coach, we set up a culture inside our program whereby we try to make sure everybody understands the value of texting, the value of Twitter, the value of Facebook, the value of Instagram, the value of Snapchat, the value of, of email, and also the value of the interpersonal relationship, which still is very important in our present day world. So then we also set up places and points of connectivity with our team. I mean, I ask my players every single day, it's part of our culture, that they check in in our office between before noon every day, every day. Sometimes I read about coaches who talk about having a meeting with their players or they meet with their players once a week or once every two weeks. I believe it's important for our players to, to, to come over to the office and spend the time. And it doesn't, we don't take all day, but we say hello to each other. Each coach and each player has an interaction and the interaction could be as simple as 15 seconds. Hi, Jim, how are you doing today? What class are you on your way to? Good luck to you. I, you know, you did a great job yesterday. We still need to get you to, to work on that defensive rebound. They're a little bit more focused, but great job. Have a great class. We'll see you at practice. Or it might be, Jim, you know, what time today? Uh, you know, are, you, are you between classes? Are you on your way to class, or do you have time now? And the athlete will respond, Coach, I really, you know, only got 15 minutes. I got to get to class. Or, Coach, I got some time. Well, let's sit down and let's let's talk and let's have an interaction about something that isn't just basketball related, but you know, yep. it's, it's 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 school related. It's family related without being intrusive. I think it's very important. Or family related or personal related without being intrusive. I think there's also a fine line where coaches intrude on their players' space. So you want to develop these relationships. You want to keep them always healthy. And, and, and again, I'm, 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 I am talking on and on here, but it is a very, very important subject for us. And then the, the players are, are, are interacting amongst themselves often in this office yep. so that they're passing each other and talking to each other. And it gives us a chance to always and constantly work at this interaction. A place of professional jealousy I have of two great coaches, Coach Izzo at Michigan State and Coach Szczeski at Duke, is that when they are able to interact with their guys and work on these relationships eight, nine o'clock at night, they might be in the office watching practice tape or game tape and they pick up the phone and they'll call their guys over and sit there till 11 or 12 o'clock at night. I'm not about to do that with a college athlete female. And I don't think it's necessarily healthy at the high school level to get into overtime interactions and I'm choosing to coach women as a male. So I, you know, I, I don't want to sound as I as come off here as I'm sounding like I'm complaining about this. I said, I'm professionally jealous because, you know, that's a place and point of interaction and connectivity that probably yeah. is why at the root of why there's such great coaches. You know, uh, Doug, I, uh, I used to coach high school basketball before that I coached youth basketball and, you know, started off basketball and baseball. Um, 
started off, we'd have like maybe one or two hours of practice a week and then a game on Saturday. And then when I got to the high school level, we had, you know, hour and a half, two hour practice every day, five days a week, uh, except on game days. And I thought, wow, there's going to be so much time. But there's never enough time <laughs> to teach everything you want to teach. And and um, I, I just, just thinking about that, that, that the idea that sometimes less is more. Sometimes uh, I think that's one of the things that Steve Kerr has done really well with the Warriors is, um, you know, take today off, go golfing, go go do something fun. Uh, sometimes that actually cr- creates more energy than just working harder. There's no question about that, Jim. About less is more in the subject of on the subject of um, of practice time and and in the gym time. I, I I totally agree with those thoughts. At the same time, though, though you asked about the connectivity and the relationship aspect of things, and that's the part that you know. No, you you don't want to over. You can't you can't build a relationship in a minute or a day or even it takes you know it's 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 overtime and and for sure yeah. you know you can't try to you, know, you can't try to develop I, I guess trying to draw the analogy to the creation of a great stew that 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 sits and simmers for for hours you can't try to just throw that in a microwave and, and, and get it done in a 10-second push of a button. It, it, there's no question that when I say time, I'm talking about the space and time as well because you can't do this fast. It takes time. Yeah. You know, um, I did an interview with Dan Coyle, who the author of The Talent Code. I don't know if you know that book. Um, but he, he, um, he lives half of the year in Alaska and half of the year in Cleveland, and he was talking about his daughter's piano teacher, who's a woman named Mary Epperson, an older woman in Alaska. And he talked about how uh, every week when his daughter would go to, to, to her for piano lessons, the first thing that happened was her teacher said, oh, man, I'm so glad to see you. What's been happening? You know, what's happening in your life this week? And they would spend, you know, five or six or seven minutes talking about her life. And then she was just, you know, we talk about, people having an emotional tank and when it's filled you can do better then her emotional tank was really filled and and she had a great practice and it seems to me that's what you're talking about is um you know letting players know that you really care about them you're excited to see them i, I mean i think that's i, I think it's at the, at the crux of i mean i think it's at the core of of all all you know, coaching. I, I just, I'm teaching. I just think it's just so important, and you know, I, I think, but it also has to be really, really a focal point and something that's worked on. Yeah. Hey, um, you. Um, I want. I want to go back to something you said. You know, you're talking about uh, Coach Izzo and Coach K coaching men, and you've chosen to coach women. Uh, talk about why you've chosen to coach women at the college level rather than than men. Really, uh, what, what I, I enjoy the most, and, and what really motivated the decision. First of all, Jim, I was thrust into coaching women's basketball back in the mid '70s, and, and, and I grew up in an era in Illinois and Chicago where female athletes did not—they weren't—they weren't in existence. I'm sure they were, but. 
because of the lack of opportunities provided yep. structurally in their schools, you didn't see it. So I grew up in an era where it was all male sports and nothing but males. And then I was asked to coach, and I graduated from DePaul in 73. And then I was asked to coach the women's basketball team at DePaul in 76 for the 76-77 season. So what happened there, and, and, and I, I, I was blessed to play for great coaches. My high school coach, Dick Flays, is an Illinois Hall of Fame coach that's a great human being. Coach Ray Meyer here at DePaul, I owe everything at DePaul to Coach Meyer giving me a scholarship, and he's just a, a great, great man. His assistant coach, Frank McGrath, was a great, great coach. And then I was able to coach later with a man named Gene Sullivan at Loyola of Chicago. So, I mean, these were all male role models that I played under. But I also was, you know, I had a mother that was a Marine. My mother was a Marine in World War II. She's 92 years old. She's still alive. Um, and she's she was the eighth in her family and seven brothers or six of her brothers. Or, I think there were seven stars up during World War II. And her six brothers were all in combat and came home, thank God, healthy. But they were in combat. My mom was a Marine, and she was not allowed to be in combat. So I, I think the fact that my mother was a Marine, I had a great role model in my mother, And, you know, she was tough. She was a Marine in the truest sense of being a Marine. She was a Marine sergeant to us children. And then at the same time, you know, she was a a teacher herself and a hardworking teacher. So I had a great female role model there. I had some nuns in grammar school, and and I'm going to slight them by only mentioning one, but Sister Raphael Mary, my seventh-grade teacher, at St. Joe's of Homewood, Illinois, was just a magnificent role model as a teacher. I mean, she was just a a really, really great teacher. So I, I had not seen women in sport yet, but I had had some great experiences with female role modelship in my mother and, and sister Rayfield Mary, who is representing all the, the nuns that I had. And this is back in the day when you went to a Catholic school, almost every teacher was a nun. And it was rare to have a lay teacher. So now I'm asked to coach the women at DePaul. And, you know, I, I've, I've, I've told you how great my high school coaches were, my, my coaches were, but they were still old school. I, to, to to a man, none of them were swearers on the court. And, you know, that was pretty rare in that day and age because most of the coaches back in the 50s and 60s swore all the time. But they were still very rough and tumble old, old school coaches when it came to, you know, a, a four-hour practice or – you know, running line drills or, you know, having someone run until they were in the garbage can throwing up. I mean, no water, the old no water rules. I mean, I grew up under all that and with all that. And now, and now all of a sudden, I mean, I'm not proud to admit this, but, you know, my first, my high school coaching jobs were young boys. And, you know, I, I, treated them like I was treated. I was tough on them. I was rugged on them. I mean, they'll, you know, I, I saw 
a coach wants practice with the players' hands tied behind their back, I thought that's a good way to teach defense. You don't use your hands. Don't just have them hold a towel. Tie their hands behind their back. Well, that's ridiculous. It's stupid. It's dumb. But that's what I had learned and, and grew up with. And so now it's two years after these high school boys. And, and believe me, I, I'm very close to my high school boys. And it's not like I didn't get along with them or I still don't see them or I don't receive you know, probably what I would – determined as unfounded respect, given what I know now that I didn't know then. But still, you know, now all of a sudden I'm asked to coach collegiate women. And I coached for free. There was no pay involved. And I I went on the floor. And I I, I tried to develop in an instant a dual method of coaching. From a technical basketball point of view, believe that these young women can do anything the guys can do. So don't, yep. you know, don't, don't hold back about they can do anything guys can do. Believe me, I was already beyond having them tie their hands behind their backs. All right. And yet at the same time, from a, just a respect point of view, I'm not going to, I'm going to work to not be quite as aggressive in the delivery as with the guys. I'm sure my 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 beginning women's coaches or winning my beginning winning players would be laughing right now, saying, "What you you weren't aggressive in your delivery?" I'm sure they thought I was aggressive, <laughs> but but relatively speaking, it was much less aggressive. I know, Jim, that you asked the question, "Why women over men?" Okay, so I'm I'm answering that question, and again, no, I along, get it. I get it. A, a, a long way. So two years of coaching those women, and they taught me, number one, I want to coach for a living. They're the ones that, you know, I wasn't sure after the high school boys' experience, probably because, I mean, I remember vividly the night we lost a tough game, and I aggressively, you know, I didn't push the kid, I didn't hit the, the young man, but I did touch the young man into the locker, you know, and again, I, I got in the car going home that night, and I said to myself, you got three options. Stay the way you are, quit coaching, or get your butt into that office tomorrow and that, that locker room, and you apologize to that young man and that team and never let it happen again. And that's wow. exactly what I did. But at the same time, now it's a year later and I'm coaching women and I think it was a metamorphosis of, or the evolution maybe of understanding that this isn't what it's about. It's not about screaming, yelling, hollering, cursing. You know, it's about, it's hard. It's still about making people accountable and helping people find their best selves. And you yeah. still want to compete and you still want to have the desire and fire for victory. But it's it's it really does have to be tempered. So now I, I'm two years after coaching the women at DePaul for free. I'm hired to coach the Chicago Hustle, a women's professional team. Uh, and, and people, when they hear the Chicago Hustle, they just think it's some old man talking about some old league. But it was a really quality professional league 
Our, tel- our games were televised on WGN television at the time. ESPN had not started yet, and the only cable network that, that went around, the, the only television station that was that was transmitted nationally was WGN television out of here in Chicago, picked up by the earliest cable companies. So we were basically on national television at 28 years old. And this was a real and legitimate league. It lasted only three years because it was capitalism and true supply and demand. And the, you know, the tickets weren't sold to supply the product. I mean, the, 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 the demand did not exist to, to, pay the salaries. But in the first two years, I'm coaching as a 28-year-old. I'm coaching women my age and older. I mean, I was the youngest. You know, I'm coaching some 32, 33-year-old women. I'm coaching professional women that have played collegiate basketball. And, you know, it was a totally different challenge, but I think it's, it was a very helpful challenge to my coaching today with the Olympic team that the you know all of our Olympians are 28 to they're 26 or 25 to 35 year old women. So the experience was very very beneficial, and very you know it, it had helped me learn again about this interrelationship of of human interrelationships in coaching. Then I moved to Loyola Chicago as associate men's head coach for eight years. And with Gene Sullivan, Gene Sullivan was my athletic uh, director at DePaul that hired me to be the women's basketball coach at DePaul. And then he hired me to be his assistant, actually associate head coach at Loyola Chicago for eight years. And so right back into the scrum of what intercollegiate athletics is on the men's side. And we did go to a Sweet 16 in 1985. So we did have some success. We won a couple of league championships. So we did have success on the men's side. And those young men are very, very endeared. I mean, I'm, I'm very, very close to them, and I, I, I love them dearly. And, you know, it, it, it was a great experience. But when Jeannie Lentier-Ponsetto called me after four years with the men, she called me and asked me if I would come back and be the woman's coach at DePaul. I told her, no, I, I, I've already committed to these, to getting this done here at Loyola with Coach Sullivan. I didn't feel like we were there yet. And so she called me back four years later. What the eight years run with the men at Loyola taught me, I mean, it taught you fabulous basketball teaching and coaching skills because you're really with a, a, a great elite group at the same time it taught me also i had already coached four years of women's basketball now i had coached eight years of men's collegiate basketball and i just felt that in the women's game i had a better chance to coach to what i'm going to use as a term here is as whole as as complete as what the collegiate student athlete is supposed to be all about which is academics which is community service, which is um, being great teammates, being unselfish. And I don't want to imply by stating my return to women is an indictment of my men at Loyola or men in general. I don't want this to be a statement that men in college can't also be true to academics and true to community service and true to the big picture of what a team is all about. That's not what I'm trying to imply here, but I just thought that my experience at that time, two years, high school boys, four years, women, eight years, collegiate men. 
I just thought I had a better chance of of reaching these values and goals that I had envisioned in my brain with the women's collegiate player that I did with the male collegiate player. And I feel like I had great relationships coaching the men, but there's still this, you know, I had a, I, the, the breakthrough with the guys was very different than the breakthrough with the women. A guy was, I'm athletic, therefore I am. And, you know, breaking into that relationship factor that you're gifted to be athletic but there's so much more to you than just your athleticism was a different breakthrough on the guy's side than it, it, it is on the women's side. And so I just, I, that's really what made me choose to coach women's basketball. And once you're in women's basketball, you know that the competitive aspect of it is every bit equal to and greater than or equal to and can be greater than the competitive aspect on the guy's side. People don't see it that way because of the commercial um, following and the money spent at a higher level on the guys. But once you're in the absolute and actual scrum of competitiveness, it is very much equal to. So, again, you asked me a simple question, and I'm still (laughs) – rambling on here about it, but it wasn't a simple answer. I didn't, I didn't come to the desire to say, I want to coach women, um, at a whim, you know, it was, it was really, yeah, a, yeah. I, I, I was given an opportunity to be exposed to how great competitive and equal a woman athlete, a female athlete could be that I, I really, um, and that was a gift that I received at 26 to 30 years old that I am very, very thankful for. You know, you're talking about um, just as competitive. And one of the things that um, strikes me often is that, like watching sports on TV and commentators, et cetera, is the idea that, uh, well, that there's a confusion between, uh, let me say it this way, intensity and negativity competitiveness and negativity and that the person if somebody's really competitive then they you know if they if they fail or lose they've got to be nasty snarly and you know I'm 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 living a dream right now in the bay area with the warriors um not only just playing really great basketball but also doing so many things in the right way and you think about Steph Curry who turns out that in spite of his uh angelic face etc may be one of the most competitive people in the world. And I, I just really struck by what you said about uh, competitiveness isn't being, you know, getting upset when things don't go right and just being nasty, snarly. It's it's something much deeper than that. It, it truly is, Jim. And it's, it's really, you know, I, I, my coaching staff and young coaches will say to me sometimes in the recruiting process, well, boy, look at that player. She's really playing hard. She's really working hard. And my response always is the same. And that is, well, if you choose to be on a team, you're supposed to play hard. You're supposed to work yep. hard. The fact that God gave us this life, the only way we can pay God back, it's not the only way, but one of the best ways we can pay our God back is through working to your, you know, working to your God given talents. So you're supposed to work hard every day, but competitiveness is different than work ethic. Competitiveness is different than just playing hard. Competitiveness is an inner, you know, here at DePaul, we call it strength up the middle of your head, your heart, and your guts. There's an inner drive and desire that first and foremost, 
wants to make you the athlete or you the person the best that you can be. And, and that's really what true competitiveness is. And so don't pretend that you're a competitor by acting out when you do not act as a competitor in preparing out. So, it, you know, it, it's really something, and it's hard to find. You know, it's hard to see. I, I, I am very close friends with a lot of NBA guys, and I predicted to a lot of NBA guys long before Steph set foot on an NBA court that he was going to make it and he was going to be very, very good. Never did I believe this good. But I, I, and people argue with me because of his physical stature and size. But I, the point I'm making is I probably got intrigued by him because he was at Davidson, because he was Bob McKillop's coach, who I knew and know, and was a high school coach yep. for many, many years before he ever went out of Davidson. And, you know, that was intriguing. So I started watching him more before other people did. And it's it's really hard to instantly see the level of competitiveness. All the you know it, 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 it takes a really uh, it's hard to see it. You you really have to watch yep. it and watch it and watch it. And so that's you know that's really um you know my little step aside from the outside looking in. Yeah, no, but, I, I I like that. You you, you mentioned earlier um, about competitiveness and. Uh, I know you've had a lot of success at DePaul, won a Big East championship, for example. Um, but I read somewhere that you know your your next goal is to win an NCAA championship. Uh, and boy, there are some fantastic teams. You know, I'm a Stanford alum and and love Stanford women's basketball. And it's been a long time since they've been back at the top. Um, what what do you see? How, how do you how do you see going about? putting yourself and your team in the position, yourself, your team, your program, let's put it that way, in the position to be able to compete for the championship. And Jim, I think I I stated that goal as put our program position to compete for the national championship. I I don't know that I – yeah, you know, maybe I have said it out there to win the national championship. I'm probably if you if you saw it, then I must have said it. I'm not going to uh, uh, debate that with you. But at the same time, what I, I really try to focus on in the office here with our program and with our players and our my staff is is we want to we want to keep reaching. I really believe. Yeah, you know, and again, I'm answering. I'm going to get back to the specific answer to your question, but I really believe that. Growing, you don't grow old by age. You grow old when you give up on the idealism of youth, and and the idealism or the willingness or the ability to have a have a a a vision and a dream and a goal as a youthful human being should not leave you because you've become an older human being, and so the vision. And, and, the, and the dream and the goal to put the Paul in position to fight for a national championship. I've also couched that goal in, not couched it, I've stated that goal in a kind of a progressionary historical analysis of our DePaul program. My goal when I was coaching and my vision and goal for our program in the 70s was to have scholarships for women. 
our vision and goal in the 80s was to be able to, you know, put ourselves in a position to compete in the women's NIT, uh, just from a pure basketball competitor. There's other visions like not having to stay six or eight to a room or being able to travel on a charter bus instead of a school bus or a charter bus instead of a, a van. That are, but, but, but it was also more about putting ourselves in a position to compete in the women's NIT. 90s was earn our way into the NCAA tournament and now it's 21 NCAA tournaments later, the 2000 was to really make this program complete and whole, like I talked about earlier, which included academics. I'm so proud that we're ranked in the top 10 academically every year. You know, and, and we're going yeah. we're, we're to fight for our lives to stay in the top 10 this year because we might be slipping down to a 3.5 as, as, as an entire group. And 3.5 might have us 12 or 13. I, you don't know. But at any rate, now the final, you know, I, I, I can't stay in this position as a collegiate coach without continuing to have a dream and a vision for our program, which includes yeah. fighting for the national championship. And I, 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 I'm not afraid to say that out loud. And yet at the same time, understand your question. With, with the passing of, of Muhammad Ali, one of the quotes that's out there is about – you know, if you're still the same person at age 20, at, you know, if you're still the same person at age 50 that you were at age 20, what did you, you know, what did you gain in those 30 years? I'm, I'm paraphrasing very poorly here. But at the same time, I agree with that quote, that you better have learned something in those 30 years. But I also quantify, qualify that quote by saying, but I also want to stay as young as I was at 20. You know, I also want to still have that idealism of, of the age of 20, you know, with, with the experience of the, the, the years in between, because I, I just, you know, when you see old people just get cynical and, and, and caustic about the idealism of youth, I, I think that's when you really immediately become old but back to what specifically is it going to take you're a stanford alum and you're a proud stanford alum and you know tara's won two national championships she's put herself in her program in a place to fight for the national championship every single year and yet you know it's not quite i i to me i think tara's doing as great a job now or a better job now than ever but it is, still comes down to athletes and, you know, the, the what Coach Oriema has done at UConn is put themselves in a place where they are really able to, to, to recruit some of the absolute best athletes. In the, you know, you're talking, I'm proud of what we've done at DePaul, and I'm proud of the fact that we have two players in the WNBA. And yet, you know, I'm still, you know, we're still looking down the barrel of, and maybe that's a poor analogy in today's day and age, so I, I might want to take that back. But we're looking down a program that has five WNBA players in each starting lineup in subsequent years. You know, you as a Stanford fan have to appreciate what the Agumakoi sisters have done for the Stanford program. And NECA and Shanae are now in the WNBA, and they're not on the Stanford roster. Doesn't mean that Stanford's bad. And believe me, Tara 
did a great job last year of, of putting their team in position to to fight for that national championship again. But it still comes down to being able to recruit the absolute best in the country. Now, if you are not able to get the absolute best in the country, believe me, I don't go to sleep at night saying mad or angry at our basketball guy up there saying, why haven't you let me have Geno's players? I don't do that. That's very selfish. I go to bed at night saying, thank you, God, for the players that have said yes to DePaul. And I'm so proud of and happy that we have the players that we have. And now it's there's a there's a secret, you know. There's a you have to find players that have true strength up the middle, head, heart, and guts. Hopefully they're ultra competitive, and you work to find that out in advance. But you can't always find that out in advance. That are we're looking for four to five simple characteristics and, and character traits. And they, they start with being a great teammate. They start with being unselfish. They, they start with being ultra-competitive. Yeah. They start with being able to step up in the big moment is something that's really about work ethic that must accompany competitiveness. And then, you know, those are, those are some of the, 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 the inner characteristics or, or character traits we're looking for. And then on the basketball side of things, I really, really value as a coach visual athleticism. Everybody has a has a mental picture of what they think an athlete is, and generally, Jim, they think it means run and jump. I will I will agree with everybody that running and jumping are God given athletic traits, but visual athleticism, how fast it goes from your eye to your brain to your function, transcends all sports. And so we at DePaul look for visual, and I, I share this with anybody and everyone, and I get laughed at. I get laughed at like I'm a absent-minded professor by because I'm into this thing I call that Bruno calls visual athleticism. But you can't be a major league baseball hitter without visual athleticism. That's why they come in all shapes and sizes. That's why some major league baseball hitters are small, some are fat, some are Babe Ruth fat, but you know what? They have great visual athleticism. I could go through every single sport and visual athleticism. You know, when when people say that Larry Bird and Magic Johnson couldn't play today because they don't have the athleticism of today's athletes, they have the visual athleticism of today's athletes. And believe me, you put Bird and Magic on the floor today, they're competing and they're holding their own and, and believe, you know, and maybe they're probably the, still being the chased, not the chasers. And, 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 and when we start to assemble how good people are in, in the league. So, you know, I, you know, we're looking for visually athletic players and, and players that have this visual athleticism. And we're looking for players that I've shifted Jim from character traits that I outlined to technical basketball traits. I'm looking for basket makers. You are sure. from the Bay area and I can't tell you the number of people that came up to me this season and said, boy, this DePaul ball thing, you play like the Warriors. I would never pretend that our program at DePaul is as good as the Warriors are presently. But we've been playing like the Warriors long before the Warriors were playing the way the Warriors are playing because we had to, 
because in recruiting we you know we're constantly playing small ball because if you can't get the six five six six girl that's so strong and so impactful inside, then you immediately are forced to play small ball. And so we've been playing small ball for years at DePaul University. So that that goes back to the second character trait I'm looking for now, the character trait, the the basketball athletic trait. After visual athleticism, I'm looking for basket makers, players that make baskets. Coaches will sit in clinics till they're blue in the face and say, spacing, spacing, spacing. We must have offensive spacing. If the perimeter does not have to be guarded, there is no spacing. So, you know, I'm looking for players that make baskets. And, you know, (laughs) that really makes it simple, doesn't it? Well, you can make them make it threes. You can make them, you know, Livingston is a intermediate player. So it's not just all about just making threes. And you still have some very impactful players in the NBA and WNBA and in collegiate ball and high school ball that score in the paint. You know, but at the same time, I'm looking for players that make baskets. I, there's very many teams that walk around that look good, but they're not basket makers. And this is obviously what you're watching with with the Warriors, you know, the, 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 the Cavaliers were very much into this in their early rounds, but I don't know that they have the overall system, and this is not an indictment of any coaching staffs here or, or comparison, but I think the system in play that, you know, Coach Kerr and Coach Walton have put in play to go along with their basket making is, is much more – I don't even want to use the word sophisticated as I, 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 it is sophisticated. It's simple, but sophisticated, but there's a system in place here that begs the sharing and, and enunciates the sharing and ball movement that some of, I mean, I think we, I, I thought Don, Billy Donovan did a magnificent job with the, with the thunder, getting them to the point that he got yeah. them to, but sure at, 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 at the end of the possession, you know, I still think there's a, a a more advanced level. Let's call it advanced level of 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 sharing and trust in the sharing. That we're not going to worry about who gets the shot here at crunch time because we trust that any one of our players can make the shot. Whereas I think, you know, I, I, and again, I'm watching like a fan right now, like everybody else, yeah. hoping hoping that Cleveland can do. I know. You're from San Francisco, but hoping that Cleveland can make a a run here, so that for me, I'm being selfish. I want the game to go seven games, just so I can watch three more games. Yeah, I don't want it to end in four. I want it to go seven, so I can selfishly, as a basketball nut, watch seven games instead of only watching four games. So, but I mean, those are some, you know, back to the how do we get it to the next level. It's just getting our small ball. And, and, and Coach Gino is a magnificent coach. And why did I bring him up? I bring him up only because, you know, this, this, this concept of sharing and this concept of getting your team to share is a concept that we're trying to overcome in a coach that's put his team in position through having great players, but he's a sharing and coach as well. And back to where I was, you know, I was starting to go there yeah. a, a second ago with, with Gino and this, this 
concept of yeah. sharing. No, let's 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 uh, let's talk about that because that um, I, I am interested. Um, but, he, but he also Doug, uh, I, to, 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 to quickly answer the question too. He also makes the mention. I mean, I I share. He had an, a window opened in his '90 Final Four team, a team that wasn't ready to go to. He got a team to the Final Four that wasn't ready to be there yet, Jim. And that's what we have to do with DePaul. We have to get a team to the Final Four that maybe isn't quite ready to be there yet, to help you get. Then when that window opens, you can't let it slam shut. And that's what he's done a great yeah. job. And Tara's done a great job, so I'm sorry for again. And I, I, again, I know this is your time, and, and, and I don't want to just assume that I can get more of my time and you can get more of yours because you might be on a schedule that needed to be off the phone 15 minutes ago. So I apologize for again. <laughs> no, no, no problem. Hey, I did. I did want to, um, in wrapping this up, I, I just I was just thinking about um, the etymology of the word coach, and uh, you know, it comes from probably England and in olden days when a coach was a vehicle that took a very important person, a VIP from uh, where that person was to where he or she wanted to go. And I've often thought that's just a a really wonderful um, description of, of a really great coach who takes a very important person, which our players are, they're, they're VIPs. uh, And, um, as coaches, we want to take them from where they are to where they want to go. And, and uh, it, you know, it, it's really clear to me that uh, you're that kind of a coach. So it's been just uh, a real uh, real pleasure talking with you, Doug. It's been great to get to know you better. And I, I also, um, you know, just am thrilled to hear more about what your positive coaching is it's all about because, you know, just hearing the, the, the debate and commit, the, the connect, believe in integrity, and just hearing the way that, I mean, even even just you're sharing with the the, the, the meaning of the word coach in, in English terms. It's just been a thrill to learn. I, I believe I'm learning all the time every day. So thank you for helping me out learn more. Well, it's really, really been a pleasure, and I think uh, a lot of people are going to really get a lot out of this. Thank you. Thank you, Doug Bruno. Thanks for joining us on this episode of PCA One-on-One. Be sure to visit PositiveCoach.org to download more podcasts.